Now, firstly, excuse my slightly strange attire tonight. Uh, someone just said, you look like you just got off a yacht in Saint-Tropez. <laughs> uh, not quite that, but I did just get off the Eurostar. I've been away in Paris, darling, uh, this weekend for a stag do, and literally came straight here and got here at 4.15, and this is um, all I had for some reason. So, um, anyway, you didn't need that. But I'm um, excited to have you with us. Uh, and tonight, you are joining us at just the right moment because we are beginning a brand new series looking at the book of Revelation. Ooh, I wonder how that makes you feel when you hear the book of Revelation. It normally draws some interesting responses. Um, a few people I spoke to, um, one of them, uh, Lydia Meekin, said, wow, that is so exciting. It's not often a church takes on the book of Revelation. Another, James Hellings, I said, we're doing Revelation, bro. How does that make you feel? He said, terrified. <laughs> he said, it's so confusing. Dragons, uh, living creatures, that sort of stuff. It is full of weirdness. But my favorite quote, I think, was like, gosh, Revelation, where do we even begin? If I'm honest, Pat, it scares the pants off me. And that was the Reverend Tim Stilwell. So uh, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, it was his idea, actually, to do Revelation. Uh, but we're thrilled to be getting into this book. It's the last book of the Bible. We'll be turning it up in our Bibles in just a moment. But we're looking at the seven letters of Revelation. I wonder if I asked you, what is the point of your Christian life now? Whether you'd have the answer. What's the point of your life, my life? I mean, especially now that we know Jesus Christ. If we know Jesus Christ, well, job done, isn't it? I mean, we're saved. We're on our way to glory. What's the point in the in-between? Well, that's what we get to look at over the next eight weeks, including this evening, with these seven letters and my introduction tonight. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It is looking at our call, the lives we're called to live in and under Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, it is looking at the person of Jesus Christ and his call to his church to live for his glory in this current age. And it's a hugely exciting book. It does take a lot of grappling um, to get the hang of and to, to work out what is going on. But just by way of introduction... Um, it's worth knowing that the book of Revelation isn't primarily the revelation of John. It was written by the Apostle John, who was one of the 12 disciples that Jesus picked. But it's not the revelation of John. It is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it tells us that. Do you want to just turn it up? Turn up page 1166 before we go any further. I think there'll be verses coming up on the screen hopefully. If we can turn up Revelation 1, 1. But grab it in a Bible. There's Bibles on the white tables, guys. Hand them out. Share them with your neighbor. That's what we do. So, the book of Revelation, this revelation isn't the revelation of John. John didn't come up with it. This isn't even his revelation. It's a revelation belonging to Jesus Christ. It's a revelation that God the Father gave to Jesus about all that was to come and all that was coming his way as, as God's own son. 
because of his faithful life on earth, living for God's glory. So that's worth holding in mind. It is the revelation of Jesus, and it is all about Jesus. But it was a revelation that was given to John. If you don't know about John, then it's worth knowing. He's one of the most amazing men to have ever lived, had one of the most extraordinary lives you could ever have. Like I said, he was picked out by Jesus to be one of his disciples. He was probably in his early 20s, like many of you, when he was handpicked by Jesus to be one of the 12 disciples. He saw it all. He, he followed Jesus. He walked with him for three years. He saw the miracles. He saw Jesus go to trial. He saw him on the cross dying. He saw him buried. He saw him resurrected. He was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. John saw it all. And in the post-ascension era, he has seen the church grow, the church flourish, but he's also seen his friends, the other apostles, the disciples, martyred, murdered for their faith. And now he is the only apostle left. He's the only one still alive. Can you imagine how he felt? And he's 90 years of age. We don't know his exact age when he wrote this book, but we do know that he was the only disciple who died of natural causes. The others were put to death, martyred for their faith. In fact, they, they tried to kill John, the Apostle John, by boiling him in a vat of oil. But somehow he survived. I've no idea how that happens, but it's obviously the Lord works in mysterious ways, miraculous ways. They couldn't do that. <laughs> well, we obviously can't kill you that way, so we're going to send you to this island. So the book of Revelation was actually written from an island in the Aegean Sea, just off modern-day Turkey now, an island called Patmos. And before you say, oh, wonderful, we went there last summer. It's not Paxos. Okay, he's not on holiday in uh, the Mediterranean. This is the island of Patmos, just a rock in the Aegean Sea. And he's been sent there on exile. They didn't know what to do with him, but they didn't want him influencing other people. So 90 years of age, he gets packed off to the island of Patmos. And it is there, separated from the church he loves, that continuing to seek the Lord, who is everywhere, he has this revelation that Jesus himself appears to him and lays on John's heart what is on his own heart. This is amazing. It's the revelation of Jesus giving to, given to John. And we'll go on to look at these letters, the things that Jesus wants to impart to his church, wants to say to his church, universal. There'll be seven letters, and there are themes that run across all of those letters. Things that Jesus picks up, things that the churches are doing wrong, things that they're doing well, ways he wants to encourage them, ways he needs to rebuke them, to call them to live a holy life. Because what is the point of our life now, between going to glory it is to be the people of God, to be holy. And this, I think, is what's going to grip us over the next seven or eight weeks. This, I hope and pray, is what's going to capture our vision for what our lives are called to be, what they're called to look like, that we are called to live and look like Jesus. 
Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can forget that. And, and I can just go through the motions and I can just get used to just going to church. Just doing the Christian stuff. Just volunteering with Alpha. Just turning up on a Sunday. Going, to, going through the motions and I can forget. What's this all about? It's about becoming more like Jesus. Growing in holiness. As we see more of who he is. And hear and understand more of who he's calling us to be. And that's what these letters are going to open up to us. It won't be a comfortable ride. There will be challenge. So if you don't want to have your worldview shaken a bit, or if you don't want to have your lifestyle challenged perhaps, then I recommend that you go on holiday, maybe book a flight to Paxos uh, for the next seven weeks, because there's going to be challenge in this place. The Holy Spirit is going to be moving. He's going to be speaking because he wants to make us like Jesus. But by way of introduction, we're going to look at verses 9 to 20 of chapter 1. So why don't you grab a Bible? It's going to come up on the screen. Let me read. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They were all churches in Asia Minor, basically modern-day Turkey. They were separated by about 30 to 40 miles, possibly churches that John oversaw. I turned around to see the church that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his hand, his right hand, on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Keep that open and let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you now and we want to just praise, worship and adore you because you are alive forevermore. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us now by your spirit. We pray that as we look at these challenging words, as we begin this new series, that you would be at work to enliven our hearts 
to inspire our minds, to give us willingness to bring our lives into line with your life and your call on us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I just want to pull out a few things from this passage tonight, things that we can hold on to to make sense of Revelation at the beginning of this series. The first is is this. Persevere in Jesus. I wonder if you've experienced the fact that the Christian life can be quite difficult, can be challenging, can't it? We can face opposition. And the simple truth of this is that that is the case because we are not home yet. You are not going to leave this building, this church here tonight, and walk uh, or drive home to heaven. Well, hopefully not, if you drive safely. You are on earth. Now, we're not there yet. We are in the world. We are the church of Christ in the world. And therefore, we will face opposition. We will face challenge. We will experience suffering. This is what was the case for the early church. John and the earliest disciples, they faced huge opposition. I've already said, 11 of the apostles got martyred. They got executed for their faith. John was the last to survive. Here he is writing from the island of Patmos. Why is he there? He says it in verse 1. I was on the island of Patmos, verse 9, sorry. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is he there? He's there because he was sticking up for the faith. He was living for Jesus. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was bearing witness. And so they stick him on a rock in the Aegean Sea. He faced suffering. He faced persecution. The whole early church did. We all know the stories of you know, the Christians and, and the lions in the Colosseum. If you don't, let me remind you. The Christians were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. They had to do battle. I mean, how do you do that? Flip me. They, they were used in uh, Emperor Nero and I think Emperor Domitian, who really opposed uh, Christians. They were used as sort of torches, floodlights in his garden so that his guests, uh, after dinner, he would take them to tour his ground and see his wonderful hyacinths and other plants. He would light up the garden by having... Christians covered in oil, set on fire in cages around the garden. The church has always faced opposition. It has always faced persecution and suffering. And John knows this. And John, who's separated from the church and the churches that he loves, knows he needs to encourage them. So how does he begin by encouraging them? He says, persevere. He says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He reminds them that this is the state of play. This is what you will face. You will face opposition. But you're not alone. The Lord is with you. And I, John, yes, your church leader, but also your brother, your companion. I share in it too. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that that's our experience too. We perhaps face it less in the West and less in the UK than other nations. But we will face it. We think of last year, you know, seeing those, was it 21 brothers in orange jumpsuits executed on the beach 
in Libya, simply for being Christian, simply for bearing witness. This is the experience of the church through the ages. And John, right at the beginning of Revelation, is encouraging them, encouraging the church, encouraging us today to persevere, to hold on, to not give up, because we will face suffering. You know, there's a, there's a gospel that's out there in some parts of the world that would have you believe that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will go away and you'll be suffering free. That's not what the gospel guarantees. The gospel doesn't guarantee that we will become suffering free, but it does guarantee that we can become suffering proof. We can become people who can resist, who can take a stand, who can hold on even though the times are tough. That's what John wants to encourage the church in his day to remember. That's what he's wanting to encourage us to remember today. Whatever it is, whether it's you just feeling slightly isolated at work, whether it's you getting held at arm's length by an old group of friends, perhaps you've come to Christ recently, perhaps that's been your experience. We will, if we hold to Jesus, if we follow his word and live as he lived, we will face opposition. Are you ready for that? John was. He encourages us to be the same. That's the first thing. Persevere in Jesus. The second thing we can take from this is that we should worship Jesus. So John is on this island and, um, yeah, he hears this voice. Just look at that on verse 10. It said, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this voice commands him to write these things down, to write these letters to the churches. But when does that voice come to him? When does Jesus appear to him? It's when he is having a quiet time. It's when he's gone to worship Jesus. It's on the Lord's day, which is essentially Sunday. Post the resurrection, the Lord's day for the church became Sunday. And it said, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? It just means he was, he was perhaps worshipping. Or he perhaps had the scriptures, if he had scriptures available to him, open before him. Perhaps he was praying. Perhaps he was praying in tongues. We don't know, but he was in the spirit. He was enjoying the Lord's presence. He was doing the kind of things that we do. And it was in that place, and it was at that time, that Jesus came and met with him. If you think about it, John would have every reason not to go and hang out with Jesus. Not to go and seek God, wouldn't he? I mean, wouldn't he have a complaint or two? Uh, you know, maybe later, I'm a bit fed up. You know, I, I have been boiled in oil, and now I find myself on a rock in the Aegean Sea. I mean, God, really? But no. He's holding on. He's persevering. He's pressing in. He's worshipping. He's in the Spirit. He's going after God. Because he knows there's nothing else. And it's in that place that God, Jesus, comes and speaks to him. And God wants it to be the same for each one of us. He wants each one of us to seek him first. You know, so often the temptation is to just wait for God to G us up, to encourage us, to fill us, and then we'll worship. Or then we'll read the Bible. Then we'll get on our knees and pray. But how often have you experienced it, like I have, that it's... It's when we get on our knees first. 
It's when we choose to worship despite how we feel. It's when we go to the word of God ahead of anything else, before we feel G'd up, that actually it's then that the spirit of God fills us and we sense God's presence with us. Amen? I mean, isn't that our experience? And that's what John is saying is the case here. He's saying, learn from me. Look at my life. This is what I was doing. And amazing things happen. And who knows how God will meet with each one of us if we just make ourselves available to him. If we just seek him. If we would just wait on him. Think of the amount of time, the weeks, the months that I've just wasted because you go into a fog or a slight grump and you wait for God to be the catalyst. God is saying, come to me. Come to me first. Exercise your faith. Worship. Get in the spirit. Then I will meet with you. It's New Year, New Year's resolutions like we looked at last year. Chance to just make decisions for the year ahead. And uh, as a staff team, we meet uh, every Tuesday morning uh, for a bit of sort of time together, like a life group, because we're not all of us in a life group necessarily. So we have a life group together just because we want to be a staff. We want to be professional colleagues, but we also want to be brothers and sisters together, supporting one another, knowing what's going on in each other's lives. So we meet as a life group every Tuesday morning and just this last week, we shared, you know, what are, what are our hopes? What are our resolutions? What are we aiming for in 2016? And, and you know what? Almost to a man or woman, our desire was, we want to make time for God. We want to read his word. It's all kinds of plans and good intentions to get into Bible plans and different ways of reading the Bible this year. So exciting. That's, that's just us. I wonder, what about you? Do you have a plan? Do you have a structure in place to ensure that you will meet with God, that you'll make time to worship him, to get in the spirit so that God can meet with you? Can I encourage you at the beginning of this new year to to think about one? Just one really easy one you can do is the Bible in one year. It's an app that's been made available by HTB and Alpha, and it's written by Nikki and Pippa Gumbel. It's a fantastic resource. You can get the app on your phone. You can just open it up, goes to the day, has an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and a psalm or a proverb, and a little commentary explaining what's going on. It will really help you take that step in your faith. Because that's what we're called to be. It's the people of God. If we want to grow in the likeness of God, we've got to know who God is, and he speaks to his word. So can I encourage you, do that. John was on this island. He couldn't meet with the church. He couldn't come on a Sunday to enjoy that worship, to, to meet with others like we're doing today. He was on his own, but he didn't stop him from doing church by himself. He worshipped, he prayed, he read the Bible. We can do all of that together. We're doing all of that tonight, but you can do that, each of you, each of us, in our private lives. And that's what we're called to. Worship Jesus. So those are the first two things. Persevere in Jesus, keep going. Worship Jesus. Thirdly, love the church of Jesus. Now, I mentioned, um, I just got in from a, an amazing stag do in Paris. Do we have any stags in the house? Uh, oh, boys, yeah. Back row barracas. Well done for making it, lads. We had an amazing time, and we were celebrating the one and only Dominic Muir. Uh, give it up for Dom Muir, who's one of our own. He's a Cindy member. He's been part of the family. 
a dear brother and friend to many of us. He's uh, been part of this community over the last couple of years. And uh, we went away to celebrate with Dom and to look forward to his forthcoming marriage this next weekend to the lovely fear. And we got up to lots of exciting stuff. Went and saw the tour uh, Eiffel. Uh, we went to the Musée d'Orsay. Why did I say that? It's the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Sorry, I got slightly, I got slightly lost. Um, that is the correct pronunciation. Uh, so, took in a bit of art, went to a rugby match, ate some great food, drank some good red wine. It was all well behaved and above board, just so you know. It was a fantastic weekend. Um, but one of the things we did, uh, and what often goes on on Stag Do, is, I don't know if you've been on one, guys, where they ask um, the wife, unbeknownst to the husband, uh, they go and film the wife answering some questions, uh, personal questions that obviously she knows. And then on the stag do, you play it back without giving the answers away to the groom. And the challenge is, we're going to ask you some questions. Don, we're going to ask you some questions. You have to guess the answers. And it's really a test to see how well do you know the woman you're about to marry. You know, there's still time. No, I'm joking. Uh, and so there were 10 questions for Don. It's things like, what color are Thea's eyes? Nailed that. Uh, it was, um, where did uh, you and Dom first meet? He guessed what she said. It was, when did you first know that you were in love with Dom? He even got that. The only time he dropped a mark was when uh, Thea got asked the question, what does a perfect husband look like? What does a perfect husband do? Dom's answer, he helps me to become who I'm truly made to be. Pretty good answer, pretty good answer. Her answer, simply Dom. So, splendid. So, the only time he dropped a mark was when he was too humble to say me, which I think he should be commended for. So essentially, Dom got 10, 10 out of 10. He got all the answers right. Why? Because he knows the woman he's gonna marry. He knows his wife to be. He loves her. He adores her. His every waking moment, other than when he's seeking the Lord, which is most of the time, is spent thinking about her. He delights in her. He loves his bride-to-be. How much more is that true for Jesus? Do you know what Jesus is doing right now in heaven? Do you know what he's doing? He's thinking about you. He's thinking about his church. He's standing in the gap for us. He's interceding for us. His every moment is spent thinking of his church, his bride. Why? Because he loves us so much. That's who he is. And that's the kind of people he wants us to be. He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for each one of you. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the amazing truth that's there in scripture, that the creator of the universe is focused on us, the church, his bride. Because one day he's going to come and reclaim us for himself and we're going to spend forever and ever in his presence. And there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be the biggest party you have ever been to. That's where Jesus' attention 
and devotion is focus. That's where Jesus is seen to be. When John turns around, where is Jesus? It describes these seven um, candlesticks, these lampstands, which are, represent the seven churches which they're sending letters to. They speak of the church. And where is Jesus? It says that he is standing right in the midst of the church, of those lampstands. Jesus is with us tonight. We cannot see him, but by his spirit, he is walking among us. He is searching our hearts. He is seeking for a heart, a life that is totally his. He is encouraging. He is comforting. He is challenging. He is rebuking. He is judging. But he is here in the midst of his lampstand here at St. Diana's Church. That's where his attention is. And do you notice he turns up? He doesn't even ask John how he's doing. <laughs> There's no like, John, are you all right? How are you? I know. Sorry. It's a bit low. Okay. Pat Moss, not great. Um, how are the burns? Yeah. Here's some cream. Uh, there's none of that. There's none of that. It's straight on to write this down. Why? Because Jesus is so consumed with his attention and his affection for the church. But also, this isn't to say he doesn't care about John, that he doesn't care about his life. We, we know that he knows every hair on our head. We know that he says, come to me if you're weary and burdened. I will give you rest. We know that he is a comforter to all. He loves John, but rather this is to compliment John because I believe it speaks of a man in John who has totally laid his life down, who has said to the Lord, Lord, I don't mind what it takes, just use me. Send me out in power. I want to lay my life down. This speaks of a disciple who has truly taken up his cross and followed Jesus, who has died to himself, who doesn't care what happens to himself as long as Jesus Christ is glorified and the church is built up. That's why Jesus knows I can partner with this man. I can turn up. I don't even need to know how the burns are or how, whether, you know, how the cave living is going. We can just get on with the business. That's what it looks like. There's this amazing quote, which I just want to read it, from John Wesley, who did more to impact this country than perhaps any man in its history for the gospel of Christ. This was the prayer of Wesley. He said, I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Is that your prayer tonight? Is that mine? I know it's not quite, but I want it to be. I wonder how you feel about your church family, us here at St. Dee's. I wonder how engaged your heart and mind is with us, with who we are, with who God is calling us to be, with the journey we're on, with where we're heading, with what the vision is, the strategy, with how we're doing financially, with how the teams are how you might be able to help out, how you might be able to serve to build up Christ's church, his family. 
I just put that out there. Jesus' heart, his attention, his focus is completely on his bride, the church. So is John's. He calls us to love the church of Jesus. As we come into land, two very quick things. The fourth point is to understand who Jesus is. I mean, truly understand who Jesus is. I say that because it can be easy, especially on the back of Christmas, where we focused on Jesus coming in his weakness, in his frailty, as a baby, taking on human flesh. We can be tempted to just see his life as what we read about in the Gospels, as this sort of poor carpenter from Galilee who ended on a cross and then was resurrected and who knows what he's doing now. And that can be so often how the world sees Jesus and understands him. In fact, in God's wisdom, that's how God allows it to appear to the world because it gives them freedom to reject Jesus, to not get on their knees and recognize him as Lord because they say, oh, he was just a man. He was just a good religious teacher, but he was a man. In this vision, in Revelation, we get to see who Jesus really is. And it is awesome and terrifying all at the same time. Just look at um, verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. John turns, he sees Jesus. He's dressed in this robe, this flowing robe. Now, I don't know if that's the sort of power dressing look of the day, but clearly it was. I think that's how kings and royalty dressed. So Jesus is in a robe. He wears a golden sash around his chest. The priests of the day would wear sashes. Jesus is his gold. He's the top dog. This speaks of Jesus being a royal priest. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool. This isn't sort of granny's hair white. This is sort of glowing, fiery, white hot, white hair on his head. And his eyes were like blazing fire. Can you imagine that? If we saw Jesus today, his eyes would be those that look right into our hearts, into our souls. His eyes are fire. This is who he is. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the altar was made of bronze and the implements used for sacrifice were made of bronze. So Jesus' feet made of bronze speaks of judgment, that he is the boss. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters, like the breakers that John would hear day after day, night after night, crashing on the rocks. That is what Jesus' voice in reality sounds like. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Those seven stars are the churches. Jesus here is giving us a picture, telling us that he is in control. He is in charge. No matter what you feel is going on, no matter how chaotic the church may look to you around the world, no matter how many newspaper articles coming out, come out saying the church is dying and will soon be gone, it is not true. The churches are in the hand of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ is Lord. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. This is the word of God. This is what he uses to strike down the enemies of his people, of the church. And one day he will use it in the final judgment. 
and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Well, it speaks for itself. Jesus is awesome. The one we worship that we come here today to meet with is awesome. And he is terrifying. And we need to understand and know who he truly is if we're to have the strength to live for him with all the challenge that we will face, all the opposition that we will face. But when you glimpse him to be who he is here, don't you feel encouraged to know you're on the winning team, to know that this Lord is with you now and always. And yet still, he is fearsome, he is holy, he is to be honoured. And John knows that. And so when John meets this Jesus, it simply says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John's response to seeing the risen, glorified, exalted Christ who came as a baby, who was hidden and clothed, disguised from the world, seeing his true glory apart from the transfiguration, is now risen, exalted, in power. When John sees him for the first time, and no one had ever seen that, when he sees them, he recalls that he fell down as if dead, because that is the natural response for a human being in the presence of the living God, who is a consuming fire. John, even though he knew Jesus, even though he was a follower, even though he knew he was saved, he was loved, he still fell down because he knows that no one can see God face to face and live. This is our God. This is Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, sinner though he was, John, not worthy to be there in the presence of God, Jesus, we read, put his right hand on John and said, do not be afraid. And that's what he wants to say to each one of us tonight. What I sense he wants to say to each of us is do not be afraid. Why? Because it's so possible to get consumed by fear, isn't it? It's so possible even in the face of God to slightly shrink back, to get nervous, and rightly so. He is holy, he is fearsome. But... Jesus is able to say to John, do not be afraid. And he's able to say to you tonight, have no fear. Come to me. Why? Because I have made a way. He goes on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. How is it that we can come to a holy God? How is it that we can have no fear? Because he knows everything about you. And yet he still accepts you. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I've been around since the beginning from eternity. I will be around always into eternity. I know every hair on your head. I've seen every thought that you've had. I know your hopes. I know your fears. I know your darkest moments. I've seen your worst sin. And yet, I accept you. John, Tim, Pat, Henry. I love you. And behold, he goes on, 
I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We need not be afraid, because we have a Lord in heaven, who glorious and holy though he is, knows, loves, and accepts each one of us. Each one of us who comes to him through faith. That was John's position. That's our position today. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's here tonight. He's walking amongst us. He offers us life. A life that we desperately need if we're to fulfill the call to be a holy people of God and to impact this nation and beyond. Amen.